you would open your Bibles once again to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, as we continue working through this marvelous book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeing the ministry of Jesus and what He came to do, what He came to accomplish, and what our right response before Him ought to be. I'd like to start by asking a question that might seem like an odd question at first. The question is this. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Now, there's a different number of different ways that we could answer this question. We just want us to consider from just from the human angle right now why it is that you are a believer in Christ. You might say, well, because I believe the Bible is true. I say, okay, very good. Well, what is, what is true? Let me, let me ask the question another way. What do you hope to get out of your faith? What do you hope that believing in Jesus does for you? What do you, what do you hope to get out of obeying what the Scriptures teach? Why are you a Christian? One of one of, if not the fastest growing version of what some people I think wrongly call Christianity is, I don't think it's actually Christianity at all, but it gets lumped in together. One of the fastest growing versions of this is called the prosperity gospel. That's a phrase we might be familiar with, or the health and wealth gospel. In reality, I would argue that it should not be called the prosperity gospel at all because it's not a true gospel, right? It is a departure from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But according to this so-called gospel, you should come to Jesus because if you do, then Jesus is going to fix your life. All the things that you want fixed, it's going to be there. Your, your marriage will be perfect. Your cancer will be cured. Your, your, your finances will just abound and increase. You should give money to the church because if you do, Jesus is going to bless you with even more money. All you have to do is just name what you want, claim it, and it's yours. Jesus is obligated to give it to you, of course, if you have enough faith. Jesus wants you healthy, wealthy. He, if you, so if you have enough of faith, God will heal you of every disease and grant you all the money that your heart could desire. Of course, those who teach this system will often appeal to their own lavish lifestyle of proof that what they say is true. Right? They say, hey, look, look what, look what God's done for me. I've, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm the one traveling the world in these, this jet. I'm driving these fancy cars and I'm wearing my Rolex watch, watches and wearing my Jordan $1,000 shoes, etc. And that's supposed to be proof that their gospel, their prosperity message is true. Obviously, there are many problems with this kind of teaching, not the least of which is the only people getting rich from this teaching are the preachers, right? They're the ones that are, that are they're taking in the money from the people that are giving to these so-called ministries and, and they're, they're saying that, oh yeah, if you do this, Jesus will bless you. And so people are giving and they're giving and it's just going into the pockets of these 
preachers. The financial blessings never actually come for the givers, only those who take the money. But I mean, that, that, that jet fuel is not going to pay for itself though, right? But the biggest issue with this is that it is simply not the gospel. It is a false gospel. Jesus didn't die so that you could be wealthy in an earthly materialistic sense. Jesus didn't die so that you could be 100% physically healthy, at least not here on this earth. And yet this is what these false teachers proclaim. And there's, there's so many that if we were even to try, to try to list them off, there'd be too many that we could even list off. There's so many names and there's more and new names all the time. In fact, just this week, I learned of a new name that I'd never heard of before and someone told me, oh, that's a really big name. You really ought to know that name. Just like, well, I've never heard of this guy before. He was Judah Smith. I don't know if that name rings a bell to anybody. Oh, you know that name. Yeah, he's another one of these guys, right? Some are more explicit with it. So we think of guys like the Benny Hins, the Creflo Dollars, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Todd Bentleys, all these guys. They, they're very explicit with their teaching. There's others that try to be more subtle with it. They try to, they code it with other things. And so there's people like Stephen Furtick. I guess Judah Smith is one of these guys. Brian Houston of Hillsong. Bill Johnson, right? These different individuals that they're, they try to be a little more subtle with it. But the substance is still the same. Well, we could, we could talk about those guys all day. <laughs> That's not the purpose of why we're here. We want to, there, there's a point to this though. Prosperity teaching teaches that if you just have enough faith, if you just name it, you can claim it, and God's going to give it to you. But what if I told you that there's a version, that there might be a version of a prosperity preacher or teacher in this room? Maybe even, <laughs> I was about to say, maybe even in your own seats, that's smacking your husband. That's off. Let me ask the question that I opened us up with. Why are you a Christian? What do you hope to get out of your faith? I hope the answer to that question is, well, I hope to get Jesus. In fact, I have Jesus Christ. But if there's anything more that we're looking to get in an earthly sense outside of Jesus Christ, we've got some thinking to do. You know, it can be so easy for us to point to all these prosperity preachers. I, I, I've named a few, and I'm not shy and not afraid and not, uh, not hesitant to call out false teachers. There's, it is good and right and appropriate to identify the false teachers so we can mark and avoid them. But we can point out these preachers that are on TV, they're on YouTube, and they have their influence and stuff, and we can say, oh yeah, bad, 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 we don't want these guys. But so many times in churches, just like this one, we can be practically living out prosperity teaching, even if we've not wholly bought into the prosperity gospel. And that is what I want us to challenge us with today. And I know that this is true because I've done it. I've done it. Here's some ways. Have you ever tried to make deals with God? God, you know, I, there's just something, Lord, that I want so bad, and I, I'm willing, Lord, to do whatever you want. 
to, to make this happen, right? I'll, if, I'll, I'll, I'll actually do my devotions this week. Like, I'll, I'll do my devotions every day if you'll just give me this thing. Lord, Lord I'll, I'll, I'll put away this thing that I know is a bad habit. I'll, I'll finally get rid of it if you'll just give me this thing. If you just make X, Y, Z happen, then I will do A, B, C, or I will do A, B, C if you'll do X, Y, Z. When we're trying to make deals with God, what we're doing in that moment is we're tying our behavior to God's blessing. It's prosperity thinking. That it's up to us. Or maybe you've done this. There's something that you want or even genuinely need And you know that this is something that needs to come before my Heavenly Father. I need to go in prayer about this. This is just such a big thing. It's a big need within my life. But then you start to feel guilty for asking God for stuff because you know you've not been living the way you ought to live. Or maybe you've just not been doing your devotions. You haven't read your Bible regularly. You haven't prayed much. Maybe there's certain words that have been passing your lips, or maybe you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at, or been engaged in some other habitual sin. And so it's like you're you're hesitant to bring a request before God because I know, you know, my life isn't the way it should be right now, so I don't want to bring that request to God until I start cleaning some of this stuff up. Then maybe God will hear me. If you've ever done that. I know I have. I've definitely gone down that road where I have thought this way. As if working extra hard, trying to get my life into shape will make God more amenable to my request. It's prosperity thinking. Thinking that, it, that it's tied to, to my behavior, that God is obligated to bless when I'm living in a particular way. Directly tying God's blessings to my faithfulness or lack thereof. Now I address all of that because, again, there are many people who claim to be Christians, but they only do so so that they can receive the blessings without regard to who Jesus Christ actually is, and I don't want that to be us. I don't want us to slip and to fall into this trap. Many will try to sell Christianity to others if we're going out and proclaiming the gospel. We're trying to sell Christianity to others saying, you know, Jesus will save your relationships. Jesus will help you out of your financial hole. Jesus will heal your physical disease and ailment. Jesus will help you break this bad habit. And many will profess faith in Jesus Christ thinking that that's the gateway to getting all of these things cleaned up and figured out. Now, can Jesus do all those things? Yes, absolutely. Jesus can bless us in all of these ways and more. But does He promise to fix each and every one of those things? Not necessarily. He does promise that He will make us progressively more holy as we learn to walk and learn to follow after Him, that He begins to teach us and and do all these things. And often, that progressive sanctification process often has a positive effect on all of our other aspects of living just because you're just living according to what biblical wisdom has to live for us, has to say for us. But He doesn't promise that you will have a magically fixed life. In fact, in other places, Jesus says that if you aren't willing to abandon your marriage, your family, or your livelihood, then you aren't worthy of being His disciple. 
So I challenge us. If, if everything in our lives fell apart, that's, if our children died, if our spouse cheated on us, if you lose your job, if you lose your house, maybe you get hit by a bus and you can never walk again, would you still embrace Jesus Christ? Would you still regard Him as worthy to be embraced regardless of what our earthly and physical circumstances may be? Or would you abandon Him like so many others in history have done so in the face of hardship? course, the spiritual thing for us to say is, oh, you know, I'd still believe. Of course. Well, of course. Come on. I hope that would be, that's true. I hope sincerely that that would be the case. But the reality is, is these kinds of events have driven many people far from their faith who previously said they would die for Christ. How does that happen? How does someone get to the point of walking away from Jesus when life gets difficult? I believe at least part of the answer to that question is that it stems back from not having come to Jesus for the right reasons in the first place. If we don't come for the right reasons, when those wrong reasons get exposed and and things go away from us, we're not going to stick with it. We will fall away. Well, all of that is introductory for us to consider our text that is before us today. We have a bit of a transitionary text today, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Mark has been laying down the groundwork, painting a picture of who Jesus is and what He has come to do. And the next several chapters are still going to unpack these themes, but we're going to begin to see a slight shift in the focus of what's going on in the narrative. And this chapter in particular contains several different responses that, deep, that different individuals has, different people groups had to Jesus Christ, to the works and the message of Jesus. And many are coming to Him, but many are coming for the wrong reasons. Today's text is going to reveal different contrasting responses to Christ. And those different responses that we see is gonna, should lead us to consider our own response and how we are responding to Jesus Christ. Contrasting responses to Christ leading us to consider our own. I just want to set us a little bit of context, remind us a little bit of where we have been and what What brings us into this text as we move through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we just came through this series of incidents where Jesus has been having these confrontational interactions with the religious leaders. People have questions for Jesus, they want to know what's going on, and the things are kind of getting more intense as we move along, right? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, uh, Jesus has sought to establish himself as one having authority, and the religious leaders aren't taken kindly to that. Right? Jesus has authority to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, to forgive sins. And in the last text that we saw, he has taken authority over. He says, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. And for the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they're having none of it. They are tra- tragically choosing to reject the Messiah. The religious leaders, they are marked by outright rejection of Jesus Christ. And the Messiah. Jesus comes offering the kingdom, 
Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. He, he offers them the kingdom, but the religious leaders say, not if you're the king. We don't want anything to do with you. In fact, they're so dead set in their rejection that they're willing to go so far as to begin to plot how to kill Jesus. Like, this guy needs to be gone. We need him off the scene. We remember how Jesus asked that pointed question last week. He says, which is better to do on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save a life or to kill? Of course, that's aimed right at the heart of the Pharisees. They thought Jesus shouldn't be healing, which was a good activity on the Sabbath, and yet they're willing to plot murder on that very same Sabbath. And Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. They did not appreciate it. Outright rejection. Well, today's text, beginning in verse 7, we see the response of the crowd. They are marked by what appears to be a surface level acceptance. Let's, let's read our text today. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Again, this is a bit of a summary passage that kind of summarizes everything that we've seen so far in the book of Mark. It talks of the great fame that Jesus was generating and the response of the people as a group. Notice it says this is a great crowd. It says in verse 7, a great crowd followed him. Verse 8 says the great crowd heard all that he was doing. And then in verse 9 it says because of the, of the crowd, there's, there's a lot of people here. So many so that it's, it's pushing Jesus back into the water, right? He's, he's having to back up and get into the boats. Jesus is a very popular man. And notice that where the people are coming from. They're coming from all over the place. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan from Tyre, Sidon. All corners of the map, they are coming to Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm trying to put a map up on the screen, and I know it's not, yeah, you can't see this at all, can you? This, this, I tried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, ooh, is this going to be bad if I step in front of that? Sea of Galilee is up here. This is where Jesus is ministering on the Sea of Galilee. These people are from all the, over this region, right? This, this from Galilee is this region here. It says he's from Judea. This is down here. Idumea, this is way down in the south. Beyond the Jordan, that would have been over here, this region of the map. Tyre and Sidon, that's Tyre, that dot there. Sidon is all the way up there. That's not even Jewish country. It is all over the map. People are hearing about Jesus Christ, hearing about all the things that he is doing. And from all corners of the map, they are coming to Jesus Christ. It's amazing. People coming from so far away, walking hours and hours. Remember, there's no cars in these days, right? And only even, even animal transportation still would have taken them hours and hours to travel these distances. 
and yet they are hearing about Jesus Christ and what He is doing. And they want to come see for themselves. So we have this large, diverse group. Again, there's a mix of Jews, Gentiles, mixed families, Tyre and Sidon. That's, again, Gentile country. And yet here they are coming to Jesus. And of course, they want to come hear Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is coming announcing the kingdom. So here they come to hail Him as King, to recognize Him as the Messiah, to rejoice. The long-awaited one has come, right? The anointed one is here. That's why they're coming, right? It's not what the text says. It's not why they were there. Verse 8 says, When the crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's been teaching with authority, challenging and changing the fundamental understanding and the meaning of the practice of the Sabbath day. That people are, are hearing this, but they're just interested in the physical healing that he's bringing about. Jesus, can you fix my legs? Jesus, can you, can you cure my leprosy? Can you give me eyesight? Can you make me see? Can you help my arm? But look at how they're pressing in on Jesus. It says in verses 9 and 10, he says, the whole, He told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. They crush him. They're, they're, they're crowding in so much that they could, they could crush Jesus. It says, For he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. That, that word for pressing is, is a very aggressive word. It speaks of just of coming in and um, literally falling upon Jesus. These people were seemingly so desperate, so anxious to get their physical needs addressed that they were falling over themselves, literally falling upon Jesus in order to touch him. And Jesus says, okay, I've got to back up here. I've got to get up on this boat as a, just as a self-protection to get away from the advancing crowd. This behavior does not speak of a crowd that recognizes who Jesus is, does it? If they recognized who Jesus was, I'm sure they would have behaved much, much differently in His presence. Now, they stand in contrast to the religious leaders, right? The religious leaders, they, they outright rejected Jesus. That's what they're marked by, outright rejection. No, we want none of this. The crowds, they seem to accept Him. But it seems that they only wanted the physical blessings of Jesus rather than wanting Jesus Christ Himself. Rather than looking for the kingdom that Jesus Christ had come to bring, they just wanted their physical needs met. And, and to a degree, we can empathize with that, right? When, when we're going through hard things, we want those things fixed, right? But is that the sole focus? As we continue to move through this book, we're going to see these crowds. and they're... Mark is kind of a master at, at his literary writings here, where he, he traces themes throughout all of his book, and this crowd is going to be a consistent theme, but the crowd is going to shift towards the end of the book. Eventually, the crowd is going to get to a place of rejection of the Messiah. 
Well, what happened? Well, what happened? There was, there was, the, there was at first the, the acceptance, the enthusiasm, the excitement about Jesus Christ, and then at the end of the book, there's the crowds that are going to be rejecting Christ. What happens? Brothers and sisters, surface-level acceptance is ultimately rejection. Surface-level acceptance is rejection. These people haven't truly embraced Jesus for who He is, but merely for what He can do. What happens when those things go away? What happens when Jesus returns back to heaven? Right? He's already said, Jesus has already indicated that he's, don't, he's not going to be physically on earth forever. Right? He says, when, when the bridegroom is taken away, then my people will mourn. Right? That's, what, that's that, the point of that, uh, that teaching from chapter 2. Well, what then? When, when the possibility of healing is gone, when the possibility of, of giving all these things in order is gone, will the faith prevail? Just by way of uh, maybe a little bit of a silly illustration, when Lizzie and I first met, I actually had hair. <laughs> uh, significantly more hair than I have right now. Uh, I'm only 31 years old, but this, this hairline has gone so far back that I'm obviously at the point where it's just better. I'm just, just shaving it. Let's just, let's just get rid of that. Well, if Lizzie had married me because of my hair, we'd be in trouble, right? We'd be in trouble, right? This, it, it, hair tends to fall out, Right? It's just the nature of, of just our human bodies as we age and get older and, and our bodies begin to decline and de- decay. Outward beauty tends, outward youthful beauty tends to fade. If our relationship is not built on a mutual embrace of each other based on, on who we are and a commitment to one another, that relationship simply is not going to endure. And we see this all the time in our culture, right? How many times do we hear the stories of these individuals that they get into middle age and then they're leaving their spouses in search of, you know, the, someone younger, someone more beautiful, someone more attractive, etc., than their current spouse. Surface-level acceptance is rejection. And it's no different with Christ. We can so easily come to Christ in search of some physical blessings that Christ never actually promises to give anyone, at least not in this life, and surface-level acceptance is rejection. We're going to see in, in the next chapter the parable of the sowers about how there's going to be people that initially, they ex- they're going to get excited about the Word of God, they're excited about the gospel, they seem to embrace it, and they, they sprout it real quickly, but then... The cares of this life come in and choke. Or the sun scorches down and they they fall away from the faith. That that surface level acceptance was not true acceptance and it ultimately is rejection. I think it's very possible that this is where the majority of the evangelical church in America is today. There's a surface level acceptance because there's the belief that God can just fix whatever things they think are wrong, and that's why I'm tacking on Jesus to my life. Not fully embracing and buying in to what Jesus is and has done and wants from us. 
And again, I, I want to challenge us before we go thinking, oh yeah, that's, that's those people out there, that's, that's all them people, those are all those other churches. Why are you here today? Why are you a Christian? We, ha- we all have to reckon with this question. And I want to be clear that uh, are there actually blessings from being united to Christ in, by faith? What's the answer to that question? Yes, absolutely, right? We have forgiveness of our sins. Right? We're cleansed from our sins, spiritual cleansing. He promises entrance into the eternal kingdom. There's an invitation to the wedding feast, right? There are blessings, the progressive sanctification. We learn how to live more like Christ and live as He directs us to live, live like the new wine in the new wineskins. All of that comes about as blessings of being united to Christ by faith. Most importantly, we get Christ Himself. We get Jesus. We get to be with our Creator, the one who has, who has made you, loved you, called you, saved you, and the one who will one day glorify you. So yes, praise God, there are tremendous blessings from being in Christ. Jesus has spent His time preaching about the good news of the kingdom preaching all of these themes, preaching about forgiveness, proclaiming a message about reconciliation to the Father. But the crowd, they're just interested in the miracles. It's a surface-level acceptance, and surface-level acceptance is ultimately rejection. If we lost everything in this world, would we still cling to Christ? There's an old simple song, call it an ego spiritual, that communicates the attitude that I think we ought to have. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. If we lost everything, could we still say, I'll take Jesus because He is infinitely more valuable than anything else in this world? It seems that the crowd could not make that statement. They're interested in, in what Jesus could do for them, but they failed to recognize and embrace Him for who He was. Now, there are other people in this text, or other persons, I should say, perhaps, in this text who do see Jesus for who He is. But ironically, they were the evil spirits. We see them in verse 11 and 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The evil spirits, they they believe, but they tremble. It's so strange to see that these are the only characters within this text who really seem to understand who Jesus actually is. Like, there's, there's the scribes, there's the Pharisees, and they're just rejecting Jesus outright. There's the crowd, they have the surface level acceptance. They're not, really, they're not really getting who Jesus is and what He actually came to do. And we got the evil spirits, and they are making accurate declarations of who Jesus is. You are the Son of God. And we saw this. They, there's a similar declaration back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. He says, 
Uh, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. An accurate declaration of who Jesus is. The people are literally falling over Jesus, trying to get to them so that they could get what they want out of Jesus. The demons, they're falling before Him. They know who He is, and they know they must submit to Him because of who He is. So they cry out, You are the Son of God! Accurate statement. But Jesus once again silences them, and we've seen this now three times within this book, that Jesus is silencing the accurate witness of the evil spirits. I just want to remind us each time we've seen those other passages that of why this is the case. First, Jesus is careful about how he reveals himself to the people. He does so progressively and he does so intentionally. He sets the agenda. He doesn't let other people set it for him. He doesn't let the evil spirits set it for him. He's accomplishing his purposes. Second, there's the issue of source. I mentioned this before, but the demons are not exactly the most credible source. You don't want the truth to come out of their mouths because that's gonna, that could create problems considering who the source is. I gave the illustration at, at one point, oh, if, you know, if, if someone like Creflo Dollar were to say, oh, yes, Ken Shipchase is an accurate preacher of the gospel. It's a true statement, but I don't want it coming from Creflo Dollar because of the baggage that that comes with, right? The source matters, so Jesus silences them. And again... Though the demons are speaking the truth when they say, you are the Son of God, this is not an act of worship on the part of the demons. The demons aren't there to worship Him. They know His power. They know His might, and they know what they deserve. We saw this back again in that passage I referenced already, Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Have you come to destroy us? They know what they deserve, and they fear Jesus Christ. They know who Jesus is, and they fear Him. We know from the history of the the demons, the demonic realm, how they came about, right? These are fallen angels. They were angels created for to, to be ministers from God. They're, they're created for God's glory. They're created to be His servants. And yet, when Satan rebelled, many angels rebelled with him. And now they do the bidding of Satan himself. In our text, though they are falling before Jesus, it's not because they embrace Him. They've already rejected Him when they rebelled. So we see passages like James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. They tremble. They fear Jesus Christ. The reason they do so, and the fact of the matter is that one day Jesus is going to judge not only the demons, but the whole world. All those who have rejected Him will be just like the demons, in fear before Jesus Christ. Not because Jesus is like a cruel tyrant, but because He is a good and righteous and just judge. 
and he gives everyone what is justly deserves. Only a wicked judge allows the guilty to go free. And so Jesus must judge righteously. But there is going to be that day. Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow, right? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But not everyone will be bowing in utter worship. Some will be like the demons from our text, bowing in fear of Christ. So we see these contrasting responses of the people. And if, and if, if, if I can even foreshadow to future weeks, there's going to be f- more other negative responses within this text before this chapter is done. But even just here in this paragraph, in this summary section, there's well, the, the passage before there was the religious leaders who outright rejected Jesus Christ. We see the crowds, they have this surface level acceptance, but it's clear that it's only skin deep. They're not embracing Christ for all that He is, and surface level acceptance is rejection. Then we have the demons who have already rejected Christ, and they cower in fear. Again, not because Christ is abusive, but because He is a righteous judge, and they know what they justly deserve. three wrong responses to Christ. I pray that these would never describe you. They would never describe us. May you look unto Christ and embrace Him for everything that He came to do. Do you know the wretchedness of your own sin today? Do you know how wretched a being you are because of the blackness of your own heart? But do you know that Jesus came to make black hearts clean? Jesus came to make black hearts white as snow. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to forgive. He came offering entrance into the eternal kingdom. He came bringing joy for the forgiven as He transformed their lives into kingdom living. And so this is the challenge for us today. Let us embrace Jesus Christ for all that He is and all that He came to do. Yes, there is blessings to being in a Jesus Christ, but look at all the things that he has said, the words of Jesus Christ himself of why he came, and embrace that truly. Not for the surface level stuff, but for the issues of the hearts. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, this means delighting in him as our inheritance. We may have financial struggles our whole lives, that just may be a a practical reality of our lives. We may have health issues our whole lives. We may have relational difficulties our whole lives. But we get Jesus. We get Jesus Christ. We get the one who has given his life on the cross to save us. So while we labor and we pray and we work to resolve all the issues that we face in this world, and and rightfully so, right? it's good for us to pursue those things. I'm not saying we ignore them. I am saying that our joy is bound up in knowing that we get to spend our eternity with our Savior. Eternal life isn't about just going to heaven. It's about being with Jesus Christ. To embrace Him fully is to embrace Him for all that He has done for us. 
To embrace Him fully is to, is to follow His teachings and His commands. Again, Jesus gave that teaching. New wine doesn't go into old wineskins. The new and the old, they don't mix. So to embrace Him means we embrace all that He wants from us, but not in a way that burdens us, but because He is our guide, and He will teach us, and He, he is our master, and we learn from Him. For anyone that is hearing this who may not yet be a believer in Jesus Christ, or maybe realizing that you haven't fully embraced Christ as you once thought you did, Jesus has been demonstrating who He is. He's been showing His power. He's been showing His authority. He is the King offering the kingdom to all who will believe. He is the one who has authority over all things in this world. In the last few chapters of this book, and we're even... In a couple of weeks as we get to the Easter season, we're going to flash forward a little bit and see the resurrection of Christ. We're going to see what He did on the cross. He's going to be put to death, bearing the punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to face Him as judge, as these demons are cowering before their judge. We don't have to face Him like that. But rather, He can be our advocate. He can be our in, in a sense, our advocacy lawyer fighting for us and caring for us. That's how we can come before Christ. And to embrace Him means embracing Him for who He is, accepting by faith that He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh by repenting and believing in Jesus' death and His covering for your sin. You too can have that entrance into the kingdom and be with Jesus Christ. Not to get healthy, not to get wealthy, not to avoid troubles in this world. Jesus said we will still have those. But we get Jesus. We get Jesus Christ. If we embrace the gospel, we get Jesus. You can have this whole world Give me Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, we see the responses of the people in this text and we see that they are not truly embracing him for all that he is. And Lord, we don't want that to be us. Pray that we would look unto Christ, look unto what he has done, look unto the forgiveness that he offers and Embrace Him for who He truly is. Never mind the things of this world. Never mind the, the blessings and the hardships that we endure. Lord, we get Jesus for all those who trust in Christ. May we rest in Christ as our inheritance. May we rest in His provision for us. May he re we rest in His sufficiency. May we rejoice in all that we have in Christ. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we close, we're just going to sing that song that I referenced in the sermon, Give Me Jesus. Let us stand as we sing this together, and may this be the, truly the expression of our hearts as we stand and sing, Give Me Jesus. Jesus.